So Revelation chapter 5, open your Bibles to verse 1 as we continue our jet tour of the book of Revelation. A jet tour, as you have heard me say, is not a detailed study, but it still is more than just a topical study because we're staying in the one set of scripture, but we're just going to be hitting key points. And today what we're going to hit is four important topics that you'll see fit with the outline of this book. As we come to the fifth chapter, we come to what I hold is a foundational chapter for the rest of the Bible, um, the rest of the book of Revelation. And I say that, again, is because of this book that is noted in verse 1 of chapter 5. So I say this again, this is a foundational chapter for what happens in the rest of the book of Revelation, because it lays the foundation for all of the judgments that are about to come. Most people don't properly identify this book. Today we will. And I believe if you don't identify this book properly, it can skew your end-time theology, what you think is happening in the future. So if you have your sermon notes, you see that the theme that I put on the, the study is that found the worthy executioner. And so we're going to look at four important items to consider, which ironically all fit with the, with the word I saw. Look at verse 1 when it says, I saw. It's an aorist tense in the Greek. And I have stated in previous studies that John is in heaven and he's been given somehow we don't know a view of the events that are going to happen in heaven and on earth. And so in chapter 5, just want you to know, if I was going to outline this chapter, I was going to go in more detail, it would be around the four I saws. Look at verse 1, I saw. Verse 2, and I saw. And then verse 6, and I saw. And then for some reason, the New American Standard translated, then I looked in verse 11. You see verse 11 says, then I looked. It literally is the same Greek words, the same expression, I saw. And so we'll look at those four considerations as to what John was seeing. And so I put up there the word executioner. And when you think of an executioner, maybe you're like me, when I was a kid, I would see play, I would see movies or TV shows where somebody was going to be executed. And when somebody was going to be executed, you would usually have a very somber scene where the individual that was coming in to be executed um, maybe be tied up and the, you know they would be being led by this individual that was big and brawny and he would have some type of axe or some type of sword and he would be very imposing looking and when he would come in he would often even have a mask on a black mask that would just maybe have his nose eyes mouth exposed so it would all give some type of intimidating figure and when we, we um, look at the book of Revelation, it's interesting that Jesus, who we know had a first coming and came into Jerusalem on a donkey, is the one that is, I believe, the one that is the executioner who's been already portrayed in chapter 1 as a very imposing, terrifying figure. And that is why I keep trying to keep before you you know, as you will, as believers in Jesus Christ, all face Jesus, he is not some 30-year-old with brown hair anymore. He's a terrifying individual with white hair 
imposing and fire in his eyes. And when we think of him, I want you to understand that he is ultimately the executioner of the book of Revelation. And when this book ends in chapter 19, he comes on a white horse with a sword and he kills everybody. He kills everybody that's an unbeliever. And so Jesus is the executioner. And this chapter is how he gets the job. This is the chapter that shows how he gets that job. Now, just a little background, if you weren't with us, we have said that the book of Revelation is filled with terror, horrific judgments. Last week, when we did our overview of the book of Revelation, we said that the book of Revelation is focused around the three judgments, seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments. And if you're taking notes, the seal judgments in chapter 7, verse 8, tells us that one-fourth of the world's population will die. One-fourth of seven billion people will die as that series of judgments called the seal judgments are played out. We also saw then the trumpet judgments in chapter 9, verse 18, said that one-third of the world will die. So that another close to two billion people will die because of the trumpet judgments. That's Revelation 9, 15. We also said what else, what else makes this book so terrifying is people don't ever think of the peals of thunder judgments. The peals of thunder judgments are so horrific in chapter 10 that they make John sick. But the scary part about them, and we'll get to that eventually, is that John is told not to tell people what they are. And perhaps that's to create some confusion as people might be in the middle of the tribulation and they're going to start to think, well, I, I know exactly where we're at. And they're going to try and date things and try to pinpoint things. Well, I think the peals of thunder are going to really be horrific and perhaps really make people askew as to where they stand when those events play out. Again, that's chapter 10. But then we saw the bold judgments come. And the bold judgments in chapter 16 are going to bring about, we believe, the death of everyone that's an unbeliever on the world. It's incredible. It has, in the bowl judgments, the battle of Armageddon. And as I stated last week, when we talked about the battle of Armageddon, the world, the world is often talking about Armageddon, and they'll talk about it like, oh, the Bible says this battle of Armageddon. But the world gets it totally wrong. It is not an asteroid movie. It is not something that deals with earthquakes from the standpoint of just like normal disasters. The Battle of Armageddon is when the world finally says, we don't want you, God, in our life. We know it's you. We've known it's you been coming back through the entire book of Revelation. And we're all gathering together in that valley to come to attack Jerusalem so that we can kill Jesus one more time. We killed them once, we'll kill them again. And so the reality of it is, is Jesus comes back as the executioner and slays everybody that has come against him. And we know that it's only the believers that are gonna go into what is recorded in chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. And we'll, we'll play all of that out. And last week, what we talked about, and I would encourage if you weren't here, we went through some detailed events in the tribulation that are being, being, we're starting to see those events play out now. Like for example, we stated the fact that one of the most important events in all of human history 
has been the regathering of Israel in 1948. Because Ezekiel 37 says, right before God comes back, he is going to regather Israel, but do it in an unsaved manner. And so I hope that's been something that you've pondered, you've thought about. And again, even this morning when I looked at my news feed, Israel is prominent in the world. Not stories about Ireland, not stories necessarily about Thailand or some other country, but it's week after week after week. You've got to be cognizant of the fact that Israel continues to dominate secular news sources so that there's a reason God has put it in the center of the world. So that's Ezekiel 37. The second thing we talked about was uh, out of those 10 was we talked about the fact that the Antichrist will be able to control all buying and selling, as Revelation 13 said. And I hope that is something you've all thought about as we go into what's tomorrow, Cyber Monday, and the world is all going to be able to buy things online so that they can celebrate Christmas in their proper way. Well, the reality of it is, is we are getting, and we are here where the world can be turned on and turned off by a switch. And what was foolishly seen to be a, a prophecy in, in 95 AD that an antichrist could stop all buying and selling is already here. Well, one of the things that I wanted to tell you, if I would have added an 11th, uh, foreshadowing, it made me really um, think this week about the, the lie. And if you'll turn to 2 Thessalonians, I want you to be aware that as we're going closer and closer to end times, that I think we're seeing the foreshadowing of what is in 2 Thessalonians regarding a worldwide media acceptance of lies. So let me just set the tone. It's in 2 Thessalonians that the Apostle Paul is telling us about the day of the Lord, and he's telling us about the fact that one of the things that the, the Antichrist, here he's called the man of lawlessness, is going to do, is going to go into the temple of God and declare himself to be God. So look in verse 4. Speaking of the man of lawlessness that was talked about in verse 3, he says, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, displaying himself to be God. So one of the other things we mentioned last week was the fact that the Jews are getting ready to rebuild the temple. And if you weren't with us last week, I tell you that I have been at the Temple Institute, a Jewish site, not a Christian site, in the heart of Jerusalem, where the Jews have said, we have got all the elements ready to rebuild the temple. Not that we're hoping, we have everything. We have the building materials for the building. We have all of the garbs for all the priests. We are training the priest. We have all the elements the, the, and, and the golden, you know, the menorah and everything like that. It's all ready. So you look at this verse and you say, ha, 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 1960, you know, 1970, 1980, 1990, there's no temple of God. Right? Even today, there's no temple, but they're getting ready to rebuild it. You've got to put yourself on edge. So that's not even where I'm getting to. Look, verse 5. Do you not remember while I was still with you, I was telling you these things, and you know what restrains him now? And we studied this before. I believe it's the Holy Spirit. So that in his time, he will be revealed. That's the restrainer. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Now, again, I'm talking about Jesus being an executioner. And, you know, some people might think, well, that's too graphic. That's too harsh. But listen, slay with 
his breath of his mouth. That's Jesus. He's the one that's doing this. He is the ultimate executioner. He's going to destroy the Antichrist as well as all unbelievers. And so verse 9, that is the one who's coming is in accordance with the activity of Satan, with all power, signs, and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth as to be saved. So the idea here is they, that these people are ultimately judged because they wouldn't turn and believe the incredible gospel message that even though you're wicked, even though you're vile, even though you've sinned, God has graciously said if you turn and repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ, you can have eternal life. So here we see that this reason, this is why I wanted to get to, for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. And order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness so here's the here's the 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 thing that god is going to allow a lie and i believe this is what is called the doctrine of concurrence where god doesn't lie himself but he just pulls back and lets the lie go um it's a doctrine if you want to study it you know sometimes we get a little technical here but it is one of the more technical doctrines out there called the doctrine of first and second causes the doctrine of concurrence i believe god is the one that allows the lie to go place and so he sends it forth he he does this in the old testament as well sometimes he'll let a demon spirit or something go forward and it's not that he he himself is the demon or he is he is saying lie he's saying okay i know this is what you want to do so go ahead so here i believe he's going to just let the lie go on and here's the thing that i believe is preparing humanity for this is that we are watching an incredible just across the board acceptance media lies and and i don't know if you remember some of you who were born in the 60s there was always a sense like there was a person like walter cronkite that was like so trusted at one point i think he was considered the most trustworthy man in america walter cronkite but his successor named dan rather got fired for doing what lying and then he's still back in the news and he's lying I watched, or I've been listening to a podcast this week about how a, how a major news station just out and out was caught in a lie, and yet there's no repentance, and there's no, there's no like, hey, we need to go out and correct this. It's because the reality of it is, is people are buying into lies, and there's no uproar. Oh, this station lies, that station lies, medium from newspapers, magazines, news articles, everywhere there's just an acceptance so today so many of you are so frustrated because you i hear this all the time who can i trust who can i trust because i see so many lies out there well the reality of it is is sometimes when you do know the truth and you see something being presented it like blows your mind how people could accept lies I'm reading a great book. Some of you might want to read. I read a couple books this week, and, and two, two of the books, one by Lutzer on how Nazi, the, the strategy of Hitler and the Nazis are, are being implemented in America, and it deals with a lot of media lies. And then I'm, dealing, I'm reading Vadi um, uh, Bachman's book on um, fault lines, on how the media is just being used to create divisions in our country and just using lies. So my point is, is when you see this, for this reason, God will send upon a deluding influence, and you say to yourself, how could the world buy into a lie, which I believe they're going to buy into the fact that this Antichrist is God, you're seeing a world just loving lies, lapping up lies. 
So all of that to say is if you'll turn back to Revelation 5, part of my concern is, is that the world is getting closer and closer and closer, I think, as we get ready to implement the activities of Revelation. And my concern for anybody that you know that isn't a believer is that I think we're getting closer to where that line is going to be crossed and God is going to say, fine, this line is crossed and judgment has come. And, and you know, the incredible grace of God is that God, even when he gets right up to the final line in the book of Revelation, is that he's like saying, like, I'm almost there. And even in the book of Revelation, where he is bringing judgment after judgment, he's trying to tell people, look, turn to me and repent. How do we know that? Well, look at just two passages in Revelation. Revelation 6, verse 16, when it says, it says, um, the people in the, in the um, sixth seal recognize that the judgments are coming from God, and they say this in verse 16, in chapter 6, they said, to the mountains and to the rocks fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And for the great day of the wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Well, again, the people recognize this is from God, and yet they won't repent. They won't turn. And when we go over to chapter 9, go over to chapter 9, it makes it more explicit in verse 20, and it says, the rest of the mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of God and the silver and the brass and the stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorcerers, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Two times he said in there, repent, repent, because God is trying to get people to turn. He could just bring judgment. He could wipe everybody out right away. But the, this is the final, like, spanking, if you will. And the line is, like, right there. It's, like, gone, being gone through. And as the tribulation is playing out, God is just hoping that some people will still turn. And yet man's heart is hard. And so today, if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I would tell you, I hope it would melt. It would put, this would put fear in you. Because the people who actually go into the tribulation, and if it would start tonight or tomorrow, you would be someone that more than likely your heart's going to be hardened. And you'll be susceptible to the lies. All the more the lies that are going to come out. And so go back to chapter 4. I just want to remind you. I know we're in five, but here's where we're at. In our study, we have said that the book of Revelation is mainly about future events. And we saw that from four to 22, these are events that haven't occurred. But John is taken up so that he can show us what's going to happen in the future. Verse one of chapter four says, and I looked and behold, a door standing open heaven. And the first voice, which I heard like the voice, sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. That's the key line. This is what's future. And what he sees is he sees a throne. And you see in verse two, immediately I was in the spirit and behold, the throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. So a throne with a king and we've got the king. And we said that this was God, the father. Because we're going to see it play out that chapter 5 deals with Jesus. And verse 5 indicates that God the Father is very angry. And it says, Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. We believe that's the Holy Spirit. All the power of God is there. There's incredible anger as God is 
revealing this scene to John. So now we come to chapter 5, and this is where we're at. And, and, and God the Father has gotten incredible praise, praise that indicated he's not going to lose, he's going to win, but he's got this book. And so verse 1, it says in chapter 5, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. So here's the question. What is this book? And I sometimes wish I would have just said a scroll. But um, if you've got your sermon notes, we've got to figure this out. We've got to figure out, we have to figure out what is the very first thing to consider is this book. And I believe this book reveals God's judgments on the world. And, and I know that sounds really simple, but there's a lot of different views as to what this book is. Um, there are six major views, and the, the six major views are this. Some people believe this book is the new covenant, you know, from the book of Jeremiah. We're saved under the new covenant. Some people believe this is like a will, that God the Father has written out a will, and, and now it's going to be read, and, you know, like, you know, your a parent might die, and you read their will, and you find out what they've left you. Some people think that's what this is. Some people think this is the book of life. Jesus, this book is the book of life, who's living and who's dead. There's, some people believe this is God's redemptive plan for um, all of humanity that's been tied to the Old Testament and goes in the New Testament. Some people believe this is the title deed to the world. And all of those are fair views, but I'm going to tell you the right view. And the right view is I just think it's judgments on the world. And yes, it could be tied into um, maybe a title deed or something along that line. But the reason I think this is, a, a, is basically just a judgment book is because the, is when we look at this book, this scroll, it's never, ever, ever Named. That's it. And so the only way we can solve this, and we don't want to force anything on the text, the only thing that we can tell you is that this, this, this scroll gets unscrolled, it gets un, um, unfolded, and basically we see the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bull judgments are all tied to this. So when we're going to come like into chapter 6, verse 1, you see that basically it says the lamb broke one of the seven seals. He's got this, he's got this thing, and it's going to be an unraveling of it. And then out of this is going to come the trumpets, and then out of this is going to come the bulls. And, and the seals and trumpets, which I tried to reference earlier, are just judgments. And so the best I can tell you is, is that this book is a judgment book. And yes, it might end up being that the, the judgments end up giving you title. And the reason people sometimes think it's a title is because Roman documents that were legal documents and often a title to like, even they had like, you know, you own a home and you buy a home and you get a, a, a title deed to it. They would be sealed like this. They'd be folded up like this. And, and so, yeah, there's some similarity. And I think in that culture, John is writing and people would say, oh, yeah, this seems like it's a legal document. Okay, that's fine. But it's a legal document that is at the, at, at, at the heart of it is just basically saying, I am going to bring these judgments. And, and the question then we all have to have is like, well, why is there a, a, a question as to who can open it? And, and here we go is the worthiness issue. And that's where we go into chapter 5, verses 2 to, to 6. And let me just read. And he says, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open up the book and break its seals? 
the word worthy there means like waiting. And, and here's the challenge. Like, where do we learn what is the qualifications to make one worthy? Did you have to be perfect? Did you have to be, you know, be the strongest person? What makes you worthy? And, and when you look at the fact that, that we're looking, look at verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth was able to open up the book and to look into it. Wait a second. Wait a second. You're telling me that there's no great angel? All right. Well, we know there's no great human because all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. But, you know, back in Ezekiel chapter 1, back in Isaiah chapter 6, there are some pretty impressive angels, people. We're not going to be able to use those? And I'm going to say the answer is no. And the reason has to be because what we're looking for ultimately is a human. And you say, wait, well, there is no perfect human. Well, we know there was one, and it was Jesus Christ. And how do I believe that we're looking for a perfect human? Is because as we go on, look at verse 4. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open up the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. We learn that he is worthy, that this one that we're going to talk about here in a second, the lion, the lamb, is the one that's worthy. Now, what I want you to recognize is John is crying. Look at verse 4. Have anybody ever thought about why in the world is he crying? Why is he crying? Is he crying because of the judgments, how horrific the book of Revelation is? I mean, Mike, you said one-fourth, one-third, and then almost everybody dies. Is John crying because he's upset that everybody is going to die? The answer is no. He he doesn't know that everyone's going to die yet. He hasn't seen anybody die yet. What's he crying about? He knows that this book deals with the fact of God enacting his judgments upon the world. This deals with him enacting his judgments and the fact that the world has hated God and they've killed Christians, they've killed people who have been believers all throughout history. And, and this is when John is looking and saying, I realize this is a book of judgments and I want this to go on. And you say, wait a second, would somebody really cry about this? Well, how much have I asked you to read passages like Psalm 26, passages like Psalm 69, Psalm 109? Those are passages by now, for those of you who regularly attend here, those should be ones that you should all know like know very well. Those are imprecatory psalms where God's author there in Psalm 26, Psalm 69, Psalm 109 is crying out for retribution. Vindicate me, God. These people are evil. The wicked are so wicked that they deserve judgment. They betrayed me. They've stabbed me in the back. They have done these wicked things. You read Psalm 69, and you're, you're like, oh, my goodness. These are godly people that are asking for this kind of judgment? Well, absolutely. I think John is crying and it fit over the fact that the, the wicked are not going to be judged. And so you look at chapter 6. I just want you to look at a few passages where I want you to see that, let me see, yeah. The, I want you to see the fact that 
as he's praying over and over, he's asking that, that victory comes and judgment has come. I, I jumped too, ahead too, too fast in chapter 6. Look at verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 8. He says, the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain. No, I'm in the wrong chapter. Chapter 5, chapter five verse 8. And it says at the end of verse 8, it says, Each one was holding a lamp with the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. These are prayers. And so what are these prayers? When you go over to chapter 6, verse 9, it says, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal. So now we're in chapter 6. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar of the sounds of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which had, had, they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And remember that expression, those who dwell on the earth, was an Old Testament expression that referenced unbelievers who live on the earth which then you click and you remember, oh yeah, God said to the church in Philadelphia, I'm going to keep you from the hour of testing for those who dwell upon the earth, which helps us come with the idea that the church isn't going through this because this is for the, 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 the nation of Israel's judgment and the world's judgment. So he says, he says, um, Verse 11, and there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of the fellow servants and the brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. And, and so the idea here is that people are, are, are dying. Still, there are, Remember, there are still believers in the tribulation, and they're being persecuted, and it's just adding to the prayers. It's adding to the call for judgment. And so when you go over to chapter 8, verse 4, and it says, And the smoke of the incense, the incense, these are the prayers, okay, which, with, with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And this is like throughout the book of Revelation, this call, this call to bring this book of judgment into play. And so I want us to see, you know, that, now, when we look at this cry, one author said this, while in this instance it would be a mistake to imply that John's response to the situation was anything less than heartfelt, it is still quite probable that his, loud, that, that his was a loud wail, as the word usually denoted, denoted. The addition of loudly indicates an even louder outcry. The weeping was unrestrained emotion as one who was in an ecstatic state. And so what happens is, we go back to chapter 5, we see that, that verse 5, one of these elders, remember I said these elders are, it's a good chance these are angels, the 24 elders, not the raptured church, but 24 key angels, because the word elders there was a unique word that tied back to the book of Isaiah, which meant ancients, and like ancients, like ancient old um, angels. So one of these elders, verse 5, said, Stop weeping. Behold, the lamb that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. So wait a second. He's telling us who's worthy. And immediately when you see that expression, the lion, you say, wait, isn't the lion the expression from Genesis 49 when Judah is told basically that the Messiah is going to come from their line? Absolutely. 
And, and so he is a lion that is from the tribe of Judah. So you had to be the Messiah who was human, but you had to be perfect because a sinful person couldn't bring judgment on other, on, on other people because we're sinful. So the idea here is that we're starting to see, wait a second, we're looking for the human Messiah. So it says he's from the tribe of Judah and then the root of David. Wait a second, isn't that another characteristic and a trait of the Messiah? Second Chronicles chapter six, absolutely. The Messiah was gonna be from David's line. And, and the fact that he has fulfilled the prophecies of Isaiah 53, that he would die and then be resurrected, you kind of get it alluded to when it says he's overcome so as to open up the book and it's seven seals. And then all of a sudden he is called in verse six, the lamb. So who is the one that's worthy? The lion slash lamb who is the Messiah, who's the human being who has the right to do this. He's got the right to open up this book, this book that has been sealed. And I didn't allude to this earlier, but let me just tell you, when my push for men coming to our men's study on Tuesday, we're studying the book of Daniel, and two times in the book of Daniel, there's the idea that the judgments have been sealed. Turn back to book of Daniel chapter 8. The book of Daniel chapter 8. So if you turn back in your Old Testaments, um, yeah, chapter 8, verse 26. There's a prophecy about the Antichrist, and, and, and there's a prophecy that is one of many that scares Daniel because he sees what's happening. And it's a sheep and goat judgment of Daniel chapter 8. So Daniel's one of the major prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And in verse 26, Daniel gets this report. It says, the vision of the evenings and mornings which has been told to me is true keep the vision secret for it pertains to many days in the future god has sealed up these judgments and now i believe that these judgments are coming out so when you jump over to daniel chapter 12 and you look at verse 4 and he says but as for you daniel conceal the words and seal up the book until the end of time many will go back and forth and and then knowledge will increase i believe the book of revelation is the bringing forth of that which was sealed up, that which was hidden. And now it's being told. And so the one that is worthy is the one that is able to finally open it. So go back to Revelation, and let's just look to consider this. Let's consider the lamb. Let's consider that Jesus is the one that's taking center stage. So it's verse 6, and it says, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. Well, we... There's nobody else that has been slain and then come back to life as Jesus has. And we've studied him in chapter 1, chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches. He is the one, I believe, that's being identified here. And it's, I saw, verse 6, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing of slain, having seven horns. And what is seven horns? Well, remember, the number seven deals with completion Horns deals with power. He is all-powerful, all right? And he has seven eyes, meaning if he has seven eyes, he sees everything. It's complete. There's nothing that he misses, which, which are the seven spirits of God. And he has the full power of the Holy Spirit, which is allowing him to see everything and know everything that are set out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand who, right hand who sat on the throne. 
And I have you fill in the blank just with the word take because he doesn't open it yet. But just his taking it shows that he has the authority to eventually open it. He's the one that's in control. This is not Satan's wrath. Again, this is something that I told you with the pre-wrath view, the Bob Van Campen book, The Sign, the constant teaching that I hear of Revelation 6 being the start of Satan's wrath. This is God in control. God the Father was fully in control of chapter 4. Jesus is in control in chapter 5. He's the one that takes the book. It is his wrath. And the words that are used with the idea of him taking this book is not only is he the one who can hold it, but he can enact it. That's why we're calling him the executioner. He's ex- executing the, the, what's in the book. He's the one that says, okay, seal one, trumpet one, bowl one. I'm going to let these things go. He's the one that's in control. His just taking the book at this point, being identified as the lion and the lamb, shows us that this is God coming to enact his judgments. And yeah, he's going to take over the world. And maybe if the document ends up with it being the title deed, it, it might. But it's a book of judgment. And what I want you to see in the praise, because now we come to the worship. The praise reveals the coming World War victory of Jesus. There are three categories of praise here. And I'm not going to go into all the detail, but I want you to see from verses 8 to 14 that there are three categories of praise. And there's going to be a key word in each one of them. And you have to see a pattern. So, so if you were going to take notes, you would say the first one is the 24 elders and the four creatures. So look at verse 8. It says, and when he had taken the book, so that's all we're doing. We're just taking the book. Four living creatures, 24 elders, fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp. And this is seriously where I think a lot of times people think we're in heaven playing harps. Um, And it would be interesting. Like I said, honestly, the 24 elders, a lot of people think they're humans. Maybe they are humans. We we just can't be certain because they're never clearly identified. But if they're angels, they're holding harps. You know, and it, it doesn't mean we can't have harps in heaven as humans either. However, that's going to play out. But these 24 elders, they have harps and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, so it's explicit. And they sang a new song. Why do we sing a new song? Song. Some of you who know your psalms very well, you know from like Psalm 96, I'm doing that at the top of my head, that psalm, a, a new song is when God does something new. And so you can put it into words. You make a new song. So this is something that God has never done before. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. See, you get the book. You're the one that can break it. You're the one that's in charge. You're the one that's opening it. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood and from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So that's what we, the concept of redemption, which is months of long study we could do on that. And you have made them to be a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. There's the key word, reign. They're going to be in control. And, and ultimately, it's Jesus in control, but he's allowing his followers to rule the world. This is total dominant domination. The key word, if you would take this, this word reign, and you would start going through the book of Revelation, you're going to find it comes up over and over and over and over. It's going to like appear in chapter 11, verses 15 to 18. Reign, 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 reign. Because this is all about God taking over. But he's not just taking over where he comes in and says, okay, I'm now the leader. 
because he's come now and there's incredible opposition and they're fighting back and the world is fighting the world is falling apart and the world is going to ultimately try to say forget it we're not going to even try to rule and fake it anymore that we're just fighting amongst ourselves we're coming to jerusalem to fight you jesus and we're going to try to kill you so this is a world war that's why i put that you know we've had world war one we've had world war two this is the ultimate war and in the end jesus wins that's what the proclamation is you reign you stay in control here's the second group look at verse 11 and then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels. The second group is added to the 24 elders and the four creatures. Just write countless angels plus the others. So he says, and I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and living creatures and, and elders. And number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Millions and millions and billions and billions and billions. And I can't tell you, I, I think it's going to be one of the greatest sights if we, when we get to see that. <laughs> Isn't that going to be amazing? You look up and look around, and you're just going to see angels everywhere. And they're saying, verse 12, with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Well, the key word out of that is power. We get the, from the Greek word dunamis, dynamite. He, he is absolutely powerful. There's no one that's stronger. He's not going to lose this war. We've already seen in chapter 5 the Father is forever and ever and ever they're not god the father god the son are not going to lose they, they've got the ultimate power there's no one that's going to come up and all of a sudden hey we've developed a new strategic bomb that's going to blow jesus out of the out of the water we're going to be able to destroy him we're going to win the war no ultimate power he's got it he is the one that's going to be in control and everything that flows in this praise indicates that he's won. third group this one is mind-boggling verse 13 and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea. And that's an expression that means everything in the universe. And I don't know how everything in the universe gets tied into this room and this situation. I'm just going to say this is what I'm reading. And I'm just going to say I believe it. It says, and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and on the earth and on the sea and all the things in it, I heard them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, amen. So the four living creatures are there. They're added to all of this. Amen means, yes, truly, I agree. And the elders fell down and worshiped. They're giving who? The lamb, which is Jesus, all this glory. And what's the key word? Dominion. Dominion means sovereignty. He's in control. There's nobody else that's gonna come along and say, hey, we are going to usurp power from you you're the one that wins now one of the things that happens throughout the book of revelation is every once in a while these praises break out as if victory has already come now here we are at the beginning now remember this is a future event john has been told in chapter four come see what's going to happen this event hasn't happened yet in history it's going to happen it's when the line is about to be crossed and when it gets crossed there's going to be this proclamation. You reign, you got all the power, you got dominion. Have you actually taken power? No, not yet. But these are proclamations that it's as good as done. And so this is what I want you to understand. This is why this chapter is foundational. If you miss up and you think, well, this is just, you know, uh, you know where, I don't know, you know, Jesus is taking a nice position, a nice seat, and you don't catch the reality, 
that the entire tribulation is about him bringing judgment and it fulfills what was alluded to in the book of Daniel because so many people who don't have a right view of Revelation don't understand the book of Daniel because it is the backbone of all prophecy and it talks about how the Jews are going to be at the center of God's punishment for their rejecting of the Messiah and and for us who read this we understand this book reveals God's judgments there's only one worthy to get it because we're going to have a human being rule over the earth that God created for humans but he's ultimately the Messiah who we know is Jesus who died to pay the penalty for our sins and that's why he's called the lamb but he is the lion who will rule like the king of the jungle he is that king he's the king of kings and lord of lords and he is the one that will all worship and and he's being worshiped even before the victory even before the first scroll is opened up and so i just tell you once this gets going the time is short and as we're getting closer, the time is short. Like I've said, absolutely, it's been 2,000 years since this, been writ- this, this book, Revelation, has been written. You say, Mike, why should I carry a heightened sense of urgency? Because of all the things that we've gone through. We've studied and we've said, my goodness, there are things happening in the world that have never happened in human history. And they're all coming together in such rapid pace. Rapid pace. And so I don't know how much time before the actual line is crossed and we're going through the final seal, trumpet, and bull judgments. But my goodness, my fear for any of you is to make sure you're right with God. I don't want to go through the tribulation. I don't know if I'd have to be persecuted. And again, when I say I don't want to go through the tribulation, I am not afraid of persecuting, being persecuted. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you better be ready to die for your faith today. This isn't something that, you know, the church here is just hoping, coming up with this thought, hey, the, the rapture is going to occur, and this way we never get persecuted. My goodness, as I've stated, the 20th, 20th century saw more Christians killed for their faith than all the other centuries combined. But this is more of understanding that God is bringing his judgment upon Israel, like he said he would, as well as bringing his judgment upon the world. You can escape it if you come to faith today. I don't know when the rapture is going to occur, but I truly believe that God has promised us, 1 Thessalonians 5, that we will not go through wrath. And the wrath is the day of the Lord wrath, which is the book of Revelation. Then he's also said he's going to keep us out of the hour of trouble, Revelation 3.10. But I tell you, if you go through this and your heart gets harder and harder, then not only is the tribulation going to be difficult for you, but the second death is going to be even worse. So today's the day to believe. And this, if you truly believe this is coming, should spur all of you on to more and more faithful evangelism. Because we've got to realize time is short. Time's short for everybody. This morning, I went through the obituary pages of the newspaper. It's overwhelming. People are continually dying. They're going on to eternity. Help us to be a, a church that's faithful in getting the message out. Will you commit to that today? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this foundational chapter, this reminder of how fast, judge, that of how your judgment is to play out and the pivotal role that Jesus Christ has. We thank you that he overcame death. We thank you that when he was dead and, and he came alive, he, his death purchased us, us who have placed their faith. We're part of the myriads of tribes and different people. And we, God, just rejoice in the reality of understanding 
that it was because of Jesus we've earned our salvation. It's humbling to realize how much you hate sin. It's humbling to realize how you are going to punish the world for their sin. And when we recognize the incredible judgment, it means to me really how patient you are now. I don't know when your patience is going to finally come out, but God, thank you for the patience that you've showed us. Thank you for this, the fact that we can have simple things like family gatherings, what we call Thanksgiving. Thank you that we can breathe and have food on our tables and clothes and doctors and a society that has some semblance of order here. While other places, like as Carl mentioned earlier, Afghanistan, it's upside down. And their incredible judgment, how we pray that that is a nation that through their pain and their suffering would turn to Jesus. As we pray, God, as we're hearing, as places like in Egypt are, we know, God, around the world how important it is for us to be faithful in prayer and all of us to be faithful right where we are here in Northwest Indiana. May this not just be an academic exercise today, God, of what future events are all about, but may this be something that reminds all of us that even if this were to tarry for another 50 years, 100 years, that we will have done our part in trying to keep as many people out of coming judgment as possible. Help this church be a faithful witness. I'm asking God that you press upon everyone's heart to make the commitment right now that they, would, they will be more faithful in witnessing. And then I pray, God, for anyone that's here today that doesn't know Jesus, that this does put the fear of God in them that they recognize that God's patience does run out and that he does turn people over to their sin and he does bring the judgment that comes upon their lives. How I'm hoping, God, that that fear, which is the beginning of wisdom, will turn someone to say, yes, Jesus, I want to turn from my sin and I want you to rule and reign over me now. Be my Lord, be my Savior. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.